Malcolm Holine is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Holine, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. Always good to be with you. Purim, two weeks from today. Could you imagine? Unbelievable. One year, one year since our synagogues closed. I was just saying earlier in the show that Shabbos Zohar was the last time we had a normal kiddish, and well, it wasn't actually wasn't one hundred percent normal that week already. There were certain restrictions being placed, but that was the last time we really gathered the way we remember gathering uh, in shul. And here we are, one year later. It's hard to believe. Let's hope that the month of Adar brings a uh, a level of joy and a greater level of normalcy. We might be on the road. If you're watching the the graphs and the statistics, Malcolm, both here, Israel, and the world, we might be on that road finally to getting back to normal, which would be amazing. That would be amazing, but people still should not be lax in, even if they have the vaccinations, as I do, you cannot be lax about the mask and washing hands and the precautions that we take. We still see new cases, new things emerging that people didn't understand and the new strain. So we look forward to, to this being relaxed, a lot of the restrictions being relaxed, but people should still be careful. Not to get too personal, but any side effects from the vaccine? A little bit, the first one especially. But oh yeah, boy, um, that's it. I can't take. I can't take it now. I know no, it's very minor. I know. It's I, no should... I get it to the flu shot. I know. I'm kidding around. I shouldn't. I say... get it to aspirins. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't say that publicly. <laughs> I am. I am going to please God get the vaccine as soon as Malcolm figures out a way for me to get it, folks. I will be getting it. Uh, please, but God. you have to get the giant size. You know? <laughs> no, <laughs> no syringe large enough, as they say. Uh, what did you think of the pause? in the impeachment trial uh, because of the Sabbath? Um, well, it shows a respect for uh, religious uh, belief and, and uh, something that our country has always prided itself on. Um, you know, there are other aspects that I have some questions about, but that, um, I think, was uh, the response was immediate and, le- and, and a legitimate request. I always wonder if other societies and other you know other times during history, if this type of request was made, what the prevailing government of the time would have done. Uh, is this is this you know completely exceptional? You think in Jewish history, or there have been times when there's been you know respect uh, you know from uh, from from leaders and from courts where they would have honored a commitment like this. I, I don't want to. Um speculate about something i really don't know whether the courts have and other countries have acknowledged the sabbath i mean i know that there are cases where uh, defendants and others uh, were able to to put off a, a trial and where certain government policies were based in in saloniki because the jews made up the majority of the workers at the port they they were closed on saturdays right and so respect for and, and this was true in other industries and other uh, places, but uh, where a court, where a national government would agree in a very highly sensitive uh, issue like this, uh, I can't say. Yeah, well. Uh, all right, tell me about the International Criminal Court, because it seems now that they uh, have uh, have said that they have a, uh, that they're able to rule on whether Israel is guilty of war crimes or not. Absolutely. This is very important. As a friend of mine calls it, the International Court of Criminals, the, <laughs> the, there are three judges who sit, they're appointed um, a panel. Uh, as you know, in the 20 years the court has existed, I think they've had five cases 
Milosevich was one, and uh, you know other. They take very high-profile uh, cases, not many of the ones that they should be taking, and they, um, you know, take a long time. This is a case that could drag on for years, and the prosecutor, uh, Ben Suda, is leaving in Jan- in June. So it's a little ridiculous that she pushed the case uh, when she's not going to be there to actually prosecute it. And the lead judge from Hungary uh, actually rejected the other two, the arguments of the other two judges and gave an amazing, and people should read the paper that his objection, as I said, it's 160 pages. Um, but many countries uh, came out against uh, the, the issue which is only question of jurisdiction. It's not, this is not a judgment of guilt and criminality on the substance, which is a charge brought by the Palestinians of violation of human rights in Gaza and, and the West Bank. Uh, and they're talking about the Gaza war when Israel engaged in a defensive war against the, the rockets and the terrorism and the, uh, all, all the um, attacks that were taking place. Uh, so this is a very important um, precedent. It's also against the United States. I know they have a case pending with the United States um, against the United States in Afghanistan. So when people, you know, dismiss these UN agencies, it's a mistake because this sets a precedent. It gives recognition based on the fact that they were given a seat as um, a non-member observer, um, but um, and and try to extract from that U.N. resolution that allowed them to be to be seated, the PA to be seated in that way, justification for saying that they had jurisdiction. The criminal court can only act on cases involving sovereign states. It, in fact, impinges on the sovereignty of states. It only has sovereign states. The Palestinian Authority is not a sovereign state. This is what the Oslo Accords, it's a violation of, of that, it's a violation of the mandate of the International Criminal Court. And so, and we're afraid then this will spread to every other UN agency that will be the same kind of uh, um, assertions as they have been making all along. So we, we believe that it's an important case to, to demonstrably act against, to try to get them to the other countries to come out equally strong as Australia did, um, Germany did very strong. And there are precedents, even where Palestinian officials themselves said they're not a, so- a sovereign uh, state. So if it was a real recognized Palestinian state, it would be very different. Then they would have a right to go. But now right. Israel and the United States are both not members of the international, of the signing of the Rome doc, uh, document that signed, that uh, underlies the um, ICC. They, so they're not members and therefore shouldn't be subject to their jurisdiction. Who are members? Are European countries members? Yeah, most everybody else. Um, so just, I just have trouble understanding it. They, they, they have determined they have jurisdiction over the quote unquote occupied territories but if a an international criminal court has been uh has been set up to judge whether there whether war crimes have been committed why would it only apply to sovereign states i just and, and again i'm not taking the wrong side on this i'm just trying to understand it why would that be no the principles apply to everybody but the the question is do they have a legitimate standing to come before a court this court it doesn't mean that they can't, you know, lodge charges or do whatever they want right. in other places and, right. and other courts. But, but the, this, the specific mandate of the International Criminal Court is only for to be to to have a role 
in which in, in, in the cases that involve sovereign states. Right. And so this is like an extension or an association. I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word. An extension is right. They're trying to, to broaden their mandate and, and to incorporate. And by the way, the most detrimental effect will be on the Palestinians because their leaders, you know, continue to abuse them. You know, we have the election coming up. We see they made a deal with Hamas this week to, to try and proceed. We'll see yet whether they actually do it. But this will delay any peace. This will, will cause more friction and, and more problems uh, in the region. It's what motivated a lot of uh, some of the countries that have come out against it. So um, uh, that, that there is no beneficiary from this, but it has consequences, The meaning that Israeli officials, military leaders, others traveling abroad would be subject to arrest. Right. You remember those times when they couldn't sure. get off the plane in Britain, they couldn't uh, to live in the Barak, others um, couldn't fly to, to countries in Europe because of it. Prime Minister Netanyahu said today the court proved once again it's a political body and not a judicial institution. So that's really the difference, or maybe similarity, between them and the U.N. The U.N. is actually a political body. Unfortunately, their politics usually leans against Israel. Uh, but here, they're supposed to be a judicial institution. They're not acting in that way at all. They're using what they're uh, what, what they're capable of doing. Completely. And, and where do they sit in judgment of the real violations of human rights? Syria, yeah. uh, Iraq, Turkey, all, all these others who are blatantly, uh, Iran, that are blatantly violating uh, human rights, Cuba, Venezuela. No, but no, nobody's bringing charge, and they're not uh, sitting in, in judgment. But those countries will sit in judgment of Israel. It's amazing how they get away with it. Like, you'd think they'd have to at least, you know, develop a smoke screen and, and, and condemn some other countries or rule against some others that are, that are responsible for real war crimes. But they don't even have to do that. All they have to do is, is deal with Israel, and the world is fine with it. It's really amazing. Uh, they don't have to cre- even create an illusion that they're, uh, uh, that they're trying to be fair or, or, or judge with fairness. Um, what about the United, speaking of the United Nations, I did a moment ago. What about the Human Rights Council? Now, President Biden has reengaged the United States with them. Yes, and that means back in there, and we're going back to the World Health Organization. Even though these are all one-sided anti-Israel bodies, that the Human Rights Council is only one country that has a separate agenda item, item seven, and that's Israel. And every year there are, I think, five this year, five resolutions condemning Israel. Whereas there was now more than one against all the others, from the Sudan to Syria to Venezuela to all of the other major violators, China, of, of human rights. So these are all, as you said, politicized, biased, um, controlled by the automatic anti-Israel majorities, uh, and it's American in many cases. So the, the um, you know, but the argument, counter-argument is that if you're not in it, you can't fight it, yeah. you can't change it, you got to be inside. Yeah, I don't know if I still believe in that but who knows um whether you actually have to be in it to be part of that whole discussion uh even when you're in it it doesn't matter they don't treat you as a colleague they treat you as an outcast so like what's the difference at that point um and 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 basically except for the embassy except for the the president of the united states you know acknowledging and of course the senate voting to keep the embassy in jerusalem anything else that you know we viewed as a as an important step by president trump during his administration to help israel like the un human rights council an important statement right uh, uh disassociating with them i mean all, all that's reinstated i mean well, iran will deal with it in a minute i get that's a separate thing but just in the entire in the political realm you know, outside of the embassy, we're basically back to what the Obama administration, you know, had the U.S. and how, you know, had the U.S. dealing with these organizations. Well, I wouldn't say that they 
did everything. I mean, the Golan decision, some other decisions, there are things that are still under review. But the embassy and the uh, there are a lot of decisions that are, are still intact. Um, there is a difference of approach. It was true of other administrations in the past uh, as well. And the the um, the question is what 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 they will do inside these agencies. Will they really draw the line? And and fight for this. I, I spoke to the new U.S. ambassador to UN, and she was very assertive and affirmative that she would do that. Yeah. Uh, but we'll have to see. I mean, it was a unique time when. Um, but it, there were people in the past, Richard Holbrook, others who are Democrats, uh, in addition, to, of course, to the Boltons and and Moynihan's and uh, all the others who who you know really took a stand at the United Nations, tried to fight uh, for the right thing. Uh, but you have an automatic majority, and, and you know many of the ambassadors tell me they don't even get instructions from their home government, so they vote with the non-aligned movement. And guess who the president of the non-aligned movement is? Who's Ooh, Iran. But uh, uh, give me, can you give me an example of a country that might say that? Like, what type of country would say that? Where they can't make an independent decision, therefore they just go with the aligned country? It's not that they can't; it's that they don't bother. And, and right, I'm saying you know that, many of them just dismiss the significance of the UN. Itself. I mean, does that include and, you know, European? The, that includes decisions. And once we take, you know, they go to Israel. And that's why the program of taking these ambassadors to Israel is so important. They come back and they say, "Gee, we didn't understand that. We didn't know it." And why would they? I mean, they they're fighting for their country's lives in in Africa, trying to get uh, aid and other programs. Right. Uh, be- so, be- better to be friendly with the majority, <laughs> and to go, yeah, to go with the majority, and to. Um, Do you think the European countries? I, I did this with one African president, and in the presence of his uh, UN ambassador, we were visiting, and and um, I raised the issue of a vote, uh, but I only spoke about the substance, and he said, "No, you, you absolutely, we are against it, against it." I said, "But your country voted for it." <laughs> the ambassador sitting there, <laughs> and he said, "What?" I never authorized a vote on that. And he said, from now on, all U.N. votes on Israel come to me. And he's done it since then. Are all these examples in Africa, are there any European countries that you think behave that way? No, there are others who, well, not European so much. Not but, European. But the EU does vote as a bloc. Right. They have their own bloc. Right, so they, they're following And there are them, countries right. that vote with the EU bloc, not right. just with the, or, or with the non-aligned. You, you just raised such an important point about the last 12 months, frankly, because when, you, when, when we talk about celebrities, journalists, ambassadors, and others that you have facilitated to head to Israel and see the reality, the real reality, on the ground and in the air, you know, during a visit to Israel. I mean, that that has been an amazing opportunity that you've taken advantage of for the last half a century. And now, and now over the last year, you can't do any of that. Absolutely. I mean, and I thought of that this week at the uh, during the Super Bowl game when we took the Schwartz brothers, amongst other football players, stars, right. to, uh, to Israel. And when they come back, I mean, they have a really big impact, especially if they're minority people. Don't don't expect them to come and say, "Hey, this is the most amazing visit we ever made." And, right. and we don't set restrictions. You know, people Israel sells itself, and you know we've had so many great successes with this. Of and, and we don't advertise, we don't publicize it. As some people exploit them because we don't want them to feel that we're doing it. We want we honestly want them to experience Israel and then draw their own conclusions because. Inevitably, they will come to the right conclusion. Yeah. 
So some of the, th- I mean, we, we talk about all the problems of the last year, and certainly financial problems are, are chief among them, what it's doing to the children who have not been in school for a year or school in a normal circumstance for a year. We talk about all that. But then we have to bring in the other factors as well. What will the future of the Jewish people be like now that there has not been a year of birthright and, and what birthright does every time someone visits uh, Israel for the first time and comes back and brings back that incredible spirit to their own family and community? It makes a tremendous difference, uh, even among the non-Orthodox. I know some in this audience might find that hard to believe. And then we, we just raised with you, and that is the uh, the celebrities, athletes, politicians, uh, uh, journalists, and all those that, you know, have such influence, uh, whether it be a small circle or a very large circle of people they influence, but a, a, such so much influence, and they and that whole option is gone. I hope, I hope that as things open up, and boy, Malcolm, do I hope that right after Pesach they open things up, I hope. But I hope that you're able to implement this again and convince people that, you know, now is a good time to go visit. I think there's such a pent-up demand. Oh. I spoke to hoteliers and others. Sukkot is in, is in demand, or uh, oh. appears to be in demand. And the um, the likelihood is that hotels will start to open in May or June. Oh, That's yeah. their expectation. They will not, many of them will not be open for Pesach yet. Right. It's, um, it's, too, it's too complicated still. But the, uh, but I hope May, June in the summer, and I believe that uh, there will be really huge numbers of people going to Israel. Uh, it affected Aliyah, it affected people coming to Israel and, and the uncertainty. So, But despite that, I just read that the that $1.2 billion was invested in Israeli startups in January. Wow, just in one month. Huh? So despite everything... <laughs> you know, and of course, we we have to remember the Abraham Accords and the opening up of countries and the uh, new potential that exists, and um, and things don't stop. I just saw the Paris City Council adopts adopted the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Other countries are, are many institutions, universities, and others. I mean, things are moving ahead, and the Iranians, above all, are moving ahead despite the corona. It doesn't stop them, even though they are people were very badly hit by it. And we'll talk about that next in America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and the Nachum Segal Network, and, of course, in the beloved NSN app. So when the President of the United States ends aid for the Saudi war, in Yemen, I mean, is he essentially uh, doing a favor to the Iranians because they're the ones that are, you know, still infiltrating Yemen and trying to establish a real presence there, like they have in other countries? Well, there are, it's you know, it's certainly um, a subject of debate. They, they stopped the what they called offensive weapons right. um, to to the um, to the so, Houthi to to the. Saudis to fight the Houthis and putting bans on it. Look, Saudi Arabia has tried to end this war. They want out of it. They they don't want to continue to be rocketed and, and living under the, the threat of it. Um, and some sort of an accord internally in this country, which is the poorest country on earth probably, and being devastated by the conflict that, that has been ongoing. Uh, but of course, Iran is supplying weapons, and Iran could be a beneficiary. Yemen is strategically located. It would be of great concern uh, if Baba Mandab, you know, would come under further Iranian control. And I say further because they have a presence. They have warships. They have other things. This is a very vital uh, and narrow passageway. It's one of the two controlling entrances into the Gulf, to the Red Sea. Um, and Egypt, of course, will look at this uh, with with great concern. Uh, as the Saudi Arabia having a, a neighbor, uh, you know, having a, a Yemen, 
with a long border that they can fire across rockets that hit their airport and can clearly a precision because every one of them hit dead center. So it's likely they were fired from Iran. Um, and we know that they have built up the uh, precision um, equipment, equipping of some of the missiles in, in uh, Yemen. So by taking this step, the, the, the hope is to de-escalate, I guess, the conflict there. I, I'm not sure that that's what the result will be. And the question is more than just the technical aspects. It's how do the countries in the region read it? Mm. And do they see a lessening of commitment to fight Iran, stand against uh, these forces? Although yesterday, the day before the president came out with a strong statement against what the Houthis were doing in tax on uh, Saudi Arabia. What's the answer? How do the neighboring countries view it, in your opinion? Well, it's in the larger context of seeing, um, you know, we, we withdrew our aircraft carrier. Uh, the right. Nimitz is coming back to Washington. Uh, the Eisenhower is in the Mediterranean. There are others that are nearby, but not in the Gulf area. And the question was, this is send a message to Iran to, to, to lower the tensions. Iran is being more and more aggressive. Yep. And that's the big issue for all these countries, is Iran, that, they, that is the biggest threat to them. Iran says that because of the U.S. sanctions, that will force them to become nuclear capable within two years. And by the way, if they're saying two years, I would, I would assume it's going to be a lot less than that, right? I mean, Well, the, the two-year assessment is really coming from Israel. The American assessment is three to four months, and that came from the Secretary of State. Uh, and the, re- the difference may well be the assassination of uh, Farah Zadeh, the head of their nuclear program. And those who haven't read the story from the Jewish Chronicle, whether it's true or not, it will determine. But the story itself is a great read about how Israel smuggled into Iran a one-ton weapon. Uh, it's an automatic, automated uh, gun that is hyper-precise, meaning super-precise, that uh, some 20 people were involved, including Iranians and Israelis, and it was set up at a distance from where uh, Farah Sadeh's car was driving on the road that he was driving, uh, along with his wife and 12 guards, and none of them were, were hit. He, 13 bullets were fired. He got hit with everything. Nobody else was touched, which tells you the, the level of precision, if true, of, of the gun. And it had a bomb that blew it up afterwards so that, you know, to, to destroy any evidence. The, um, and removing him set back the problem because there was no successor. He, he had it all in his head. And the documents that Israel took out of Tehran, they show a lot are in his handwriting, and a lot of it was really linked to him. So it was a, a huge blow to their uh, nuclear aspiration. And this week, for the first time, we saw statements from the Minister of Intelligence, who is an appointee of the Supreme Leader, where he talks about the nuclear program and how fast they're going to get to it. And, um, and you know, that this is, comes in the week when U.N. inspectors admitted that found radioactive traces in places uh, where it wasn't, it's not supposed to be, meaning that they... I found new evidence of, of undeclared nuclear activities in Iran, and this is coming from diplomats who were briefed on, on it, and so it raises new questions. It's just the beginning of it. But when the intelligence minister gets up and says we're going to pursue nuclear weapons, even though there's a supposed fatwa from 2003 by the Supreme Leader that uh, it can only be used for peaceful purposes and that they can't make nuclear weapons, that clearly is is uh, a fiction today, and that... Um, uh, when the United States feels they're months away, then it tells you the JCPOA didn't 
accomplish it, and their argument is that pulling out of the JCPOA uh, didn't didn't accomplish it. Can we but, go? Uh, if yeah. I could just say that there are other manifestations that just came out with a study ADL did of their textbooks, whereas many countries have moderated in view of all the events of the past year. Uh, their textbooks, we see that the Iranians, in fact, are escalating the anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, even anti-American content of their textbooks, and that they have more and more vile stuff uh, in them. Uh, and, in fact, they, they upgraded in the midst of the COVID uh, outbreak, which they suffered from greatly, to, uh, to repeat the conspiracy theories that uh, are abound against Jews, against Israel. Can we go back to the Fakir Zada story for a second? You can. <laughs> can we please? It's a great story. I, I, but it's unbelievable. First of all, ha, I mean, how do how do tens of spies, agents, get in from Israel to Iran? To well, make- I didn't say tens. Of, it said there were 20, they estimated 20 people. Again, this is just a report. No, I get uh, it. But, uh, but, but, it, but the, you know, they there are Iranians. They, in fact... This uh, same minister of intelligence, he said that a, a member of the Iranian military had been involved in the attack. And doesn't name anybody. Nobody has substantiated it. And nobody has done anything else to 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 uh, say whether that is true or not. But they're trying to explain how come all their vaunted um, ec- uh, security and everybody were were fooled or, or they could bypass them. This is a guy who traveled with security cars everywhere right. and many security guards. And, 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 how, and how large is a one-ton gun? I mean, it, it, it's mounted on the back of a truck, um, and um, it, 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 how much does it weigh, one ton? <laughs> no, I get it, but meaning, I mean, it had to be hidden. I'm sure it had to be hidden for a while as they're putting it well, together. As I said, they assembled it right. there. This was, it was at a location away from the house, so, wow. you know, in a field where they could set it up. Maybe it does it's not, make it's sense. It's not huge yeah. in the sense of, right. Right. of it that includes the weight of the bomb right. it doesn't take a, blow it up. It doesn't take up a lot of space. I get it, yeah. Interesting. Actually, it does make sense. I mean, as, as, as well, as much as they can, but, but as, as your point, uh, I mean, your point is, uh, very important to keep in mind. We don't realize how many people inside Iran could be helping the Israelis when it comes to operations like this, and that, of course, is half the battle. And the attacks that we saw this year, the nine, I think, attacks against uh, nuclear facilities, and right. other places, you know, they link it all together, and I think we also link it all together. And they're going to escalate as a result in some of the things that they're doing. We, we, we see it in cyber warfare. Um, which they are engaged in against Israel, against the U.S., against uh, uh, others, and certainly against the countries who join in the uh, Abraham Accords. But also we see it in the north of Israel, along the, the Lebanese border, where Hezbollah is again building up in the efforts to get them the GPS-guided missiles, the, the guidance systems, which enable them to um, you know, make, it a, make it a much more precise hit, because most of their rockets just would fly anywhere. Uh, many didn't even make it across the border. This this will um, greatly enhance their uh, ability, and they, so they say they have this uh, shock unit, which they call is what they call it, um, and that it will use a limited offensive lasting a couple days, that uh, avoids an all-out war, which neither side really wants. But they need to get they want revenge for Soleimani, they want revenge for Baghdadet. Uh, you know that they tried to put to put IEDs, the plant bombs. They dug these immense t- 
tunnels under the border to Israel. They've shot rockets across. So they're trying and trying to penetrate in every way possible, and especially on ground. And uh, maybe we'll see if Mr. Assad, who is supposedly looking to lessen their presence, will actually take steps towards that end. The final piece on the Iran conversation, as far as I'm concerned, I know the inauguration was only three weeks ago, but and I ask you this every week, and rightfully, you, you know, I, I shouldn't expect you to be able to answer this at this point, but at some point the President of the United States is going to have to take a direction when it comes to Iran. Is there anybody in Washington giving you any type of indication of how this is going to end up, if there's going to be some type of attempt to have a real deal, or if he's going to be stronger than Obama was when it comes to Iran in terms of their threats and you know whatever response he may take, either militarily or just politically, in terms of what he'll say? Have you have any, any indication yet? Well, there have been a lot. The president uh, spoke again this week about it and uh, spoken repeatedly that uh, they're not going to go back quickly, even though there are people pressing, especially within the uh, Congress and others in the Democratic Party, that were pressing, you know, for a quick return to the JCPOA. And he asked people in the government, several who were the authors or the architects of the JCPOA or of Amer- and Americans' participation. But you saw the president said that he's not going to jump in and he wants compliance first, meaning that the Iranians have to live up to it. The Iranians are saying, no, we're not going to comply until first you come back into the deal, you take away the sanctions, you compensate us, then we'll talk about, um, you know, addressing our nuclear program. They have made statements that they're ready to reverse it and that it is reversible. But the United States has to remove all the sanctions, and President Biden said, we're not removing the sanctions until we see that you're coming into compliance. And Iran claims that it's those sanctions that are going to get them to speed up the process. So it's, you know. Well, it's no not the Iranians. It's, it's the, we claim that it's it's the sanctions that have, have brought them to this point. Their economies and ruins, they can be. No, that I get. But they boast about everything, but not all of it is true. And, and they're taking it away from their people. And the, you see the dissension within the country continues to grow. Right, but it seems that every time, no matter what the U.S. says, Iran says that's the excuse for for getting to nuclear capability faster. Whether it's sanctions, deal, no deal, military, no military, no matter what the U.S. does, it seems is there's always that's always the reason why they claim they have to you know step up their nuclear program. So I don't even know if it makes a difference at this point um, in terms of whether there's a deal or not with the United States because I don't know if it's going to stop Iran either way. And, um, and the Iranians believe that it's their leverage is is delaying negotiations on the JCPOA. Right. That, that that puts more pressure, and especially because some of the Europeans, but the, the revelations about the advances they're making yeah. in their nuclear program, the new centrifuges and the other things that I that, mentioned about the undeclared sites. And that's and why the we, head of the IEA came out this week with pretty strong statements. Um, that's why they need a show of strength from Washington. That, that's why that, they shouldn't be dilly-dallying on this. Well, they're saying they're not dilly-dallying, right. and they haven't rushed into an agreement, and they're not they're saying that they're going to hold off on uh, compliance, but we'll, we'll see. It, again, for me, often it's the messages that we send. It's not just the actions we right. take. It's whether they believe they can wait it out. Will they, um, you know, the, the Iranians are doing everything possible. They're doing um, uh, ground force drills near the Iraqi border right now. By the way, the IDF is, did, did exercises for three days this week on the northern border. Uh, if, uh, sorry. I don't know what that is. My computer all of a sudden decided to take <laughs> uh, Good morning. And, uh, um, you know, so they're not sitting on their hands either in this, but you can see the desperation that they have. Uh, a couple of other quick things. Um, well, first of all, the Prime Minister has, pl- has pled not guilty. You think that this is uh, 
Uh, now that again, I mean, I, I, I guess it's always been in the headlines this trial. But now that, but now that uh, he has actually submitted a plea, you think it's going to affect the election one way or the other? The, the plea doesn't. And the people, I think, have been through this for so many years, and it's going to be delayed. I, I doubt that they're going to. I think the court even gave him permission that it go, go after the election. But there will be a lot of buildup. It will be exploited. It is on people's minds. Um, it, it certainly has a detrimental effect. But the question is, can, do, do they mount a real opposition? The Lapid has been rising. You see the right is divided. The uh, left is very divided. And and uh, some of the parties' merits, others don't even seem to make the cut. Yeah. Um, and now, and the and people now, dropping out, the mayor of Tel Aviv's party, Bugui Alom, right. uh, people across the spectrum. And on the other side, they're, they're conjecturing again that BB could win and not be able to form a coalition. That, well, if you take all right, the, 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 it, somebody described it as you have two blocks, the, the BB block and the anti-BB block, which right now probably has more votes, but but people who may declare themselves as anti-BB really could join in a coalition, perhaps under certain imposing restrictions, conditions, whatever on it, right. but they could get come into the deal to a, a coalition. And the fear that I hear from most Israelis is that we'll have to go to a fifth election, that uh, there are 39 parties right now. I think only 10 are, even have a chance of getting across the, uh, the, the threshold, the 3.25% uh, threshold. And you saw that they signed your vote-sharing agreements so that they don't lose individual seats because of, of you know, half a seat, a vote's enough for half a seat. So when you combine two, two parties together, they share the extra seats that... Israeli law allows, but the the um, I think that there will be a lot of up and down every time somebody new or something uh, arises. Then they go up in the polls, and then all of a sudden you see the the down to nothing. When um, Hudayi, the mayor of Tel Aviv, announced he went to eight seats, he, and, and now he couldn't even get it virtually any. Right, and it's true of others. Israeli politics is very volatile. You may want to pick this up next week, but let me just mention it before we wrap up. The PA wrecked havoc on the biblical era site of Yoshua ben Nun's altar on Har Eval, including grinding stones from the area into gra- grinding stones from the area into gravel as part of a plan to pave a new road near the city of Shechem. Can you give us a comment on this story? Yes, it's uh, it's terrible. It's a disgrace, and uh, I want to see UNESCO and the world community come down on the on the Palestinian uh, authority for for disregarding it, but we know, I actually spoke about this a couple months ago because we had seen the first signs that they were asserting uh, control in the area and and um, driving trucks in, in the region nearby. Uh, it's it's uh, very important. We, we should, we'll talk about it more next yeah. week because there are other things related in terms of amazing discoveries that are, are coming up all the time, just every day virtually. Uh, that are being revealed after testing from the summer digs, and now we're going to enter into the next uh, uh, season. So there are really remarkable things that are being discovered, but but they have to be protected. You know that many of the sites are robbed, um, and Arabs sell, sell it on the black market and for many decades, hundreds of years, in fact. And they found new evidence that there may have been additional Dead Sea Scrolls, not from the region, immediate region, uh, and hope that maybe they can still be discovered, but it may be evidence that they, they were raided earlier on. Malcolm, I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak next week. Good Shabbos. Everybody be well and good Chodesh. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JMNAM for the weekly update.